0: Welcome to another episode of Beer is a Conversation, proudly presented by your malt mates, Cryer Malt. I'm Matt Kirkegaard, and this week I'm joined by Lockie Crother, head brewer at Brisbane's Ballistic Brewing. Regular listeners will know that freshness has been a recurring topic on the podcast channel, and so when Ballistic released a beer with a dead-by date, our interest was immediately piqued. The Sleep When You're Dead range is a series of one-off, hop-driven, limited-releases, which are launched with a two-month best-before date that the brewery calls a dead-buy date because after that date passes, they retrieve any unsold beer from trade. It's a gutsy move and one that cynics may say is about marketing, which no doubt it is, but it also carries a strong educational message about how long some beers can sit on shelves and still convey the brewer's promise of quality. We also talk about Lockie's background as a brewer, his approach to beer and a little bit about ballistic beer. Enjoy the conversation. Locky Crothers, welcome to Beer as a Conversation. Thanks, Matt. Matt, we are sitting here in the, uh, the majestic office of uh, Ballistic. <laughs> I, 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 I can see why uh, people get attracted to the, the brewing industry when you get to work in such palatial environments. <laughs> no need to be facetious. <laughs> no, no, but it, it, it is brewing offices. Uh, I, I, I think there's been a lot of uh, photo um, stories about brewers. I think there mm. should be a, a, a really good uh, photo essay in brewers' offices for exactly the same reason. Start up a new Instagram account for <laughs> it, you think? <laughs> yeah, they have they have a whole lot of character. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, we, we're here today to talk about uh, Ballistic's um, Sleep When You're Dead range, mm-hmm. um, but th- th- given that this is your first appearance on uh, Brewer's of Conversation, we'll mm-hmm. just sort of step back a little bit and uh, find out a little bit of, about who is uh, Lockie Crothers.
1: Sure. So... I'm a uh, sand grouper, so originally from Western Australia, down south, um, about 60 Ks inland from Margaret River. Um, I grew up on a vineyard, so growing wine grapes, um, and then sort of spent a bit of time my childhood making uh, homebrew wine, which, uh, I don't know, for, for better or worse, happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I uh, spent a bit of time mulling around after I'd left school and um worked in and out of bottle shops and stuff like that and just decided I liked beer but didn't really know what to do with that so um basically just started going on seek uh the website and typing in beer and um seeing what came up every week and uh found a job that uh, advertised at gauge roads as an assistant brewer uh went in there in my uh Liquorland uniform I tucked in polo shirt and um before work one day, managed to convince Aaron Heary to uh, give me a gig somehow. I don't know why he took a punt on that, but um, thanks to that, Aaron. Um, so I spent the next sort of five years of my life working shift work at Gage Road, started off as an assistant brewer, moved up to team leader, uh, spent some time in the packaging department, spent some time in quality, spent some time in the engineering department there. Um, I was lucky enough to get the opportunities to work on some projects installing um, equipment and commissioning new stuff there. Um, got sick of working shift work so my now wife and I packed up sold everything we owned and moved over uh, overseas to Europe. We um, spent out six months traveling around Europe drinking beer and um, eating food and generally being decadent in uh, every a- aspect of our lives, and um, ended up moving to London, where I spent uh, six months brewing at Camden Town um, over there. Just
0: stepping back, Gay Roads, you know, I think Gay Roads and Little Creatures are two brews that spring to mind that have really become almost uh, training grounds. You know, it's almost become brewer cratias in, in a way where so many brewers have gone through there, they've learned, and then gone on and you know. I can't think of too many that aren't really nailing the, the beers that they're making.
1: Sure. Yeah, I guess um, those brews are around for so long, um, you know, and, and to me, Western Australia was sort of the the heart of, of craft brewing in Australia, you know, with the starts of... Um, the Salon Anchor, if correct me if I'm wrong, but it was the original uh, brew pub in Australia. Um, oh, and Brett the,
0: Stubbs might uh, cavil with you saying the original, but sure. we, we, we can certainly trace back a one, lot of what we're experiencing <laughs> now to the Salon Anchor and then Matilda Bay. One and, of the first,
1: yeah. yeah, and then Matilda Bay. And so I think just um, being breweries of, uh, of a, a, a substantial size, I guess, and being around for so long, there was enough um turnover of staff and enough systems in place where a lot of the brewers that came through they could learn learn their trade and then um, obviously got sick of the the uh, uh, shift work lifestyle and then went on to do other stuff but yeah there's a lot, a lot of good training, a lot of good brewers I know have come out of those brewers particularly.
0: Now we first met uh, gee it must have been, It it was at a brewers' conference. I can't remember which of the uh, independent brewers' conferences it was, but you'd signed on uh, for Ballistic. Um, It was well before you had stainless or anything along those lines. So you've been instrumental in the uh, evolution and the design and the coming together of Ballistic. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you came to meet uh, David Kitchen and uh, be part of the uh, Ballistic in Brisbane.
1: Sure. So um, as I was saying before, directly before um, moving to Brisbane, I was living in London. Um, my wife was sick of the weather and we wanted to go somewhere a bit warmer. So um, it started putting the feelers out to some um, other breweries around the world. And um, I actually got offered a job in Vietnam. So doing a startup there for an American company, uh, building a 20 heck brew house. Um, and basically getting a, a greenfield site and building a, a new brewery there. Um, I actually had a contract and I was about a centimetre away from, from signing it and my wife just said maybe you should just um, have a look at uh, what else is out there in Australia because we're probably going to end up there. One day um, cause they, want, they wanted a firm two, three-year commitment um, for this Vietnam job, so I just threw my resume out to a few jobs that I was qualified to do um in australia um one was for in brisbane a a brewery called atlas brewing at the time which um thank god i got to um, have a bit of input into uh the name as well once i got here but um yeah got in touch with david he advertised um for a brewer he'd actually spent about two years previous to that writing a business plan and getting its um Basically into a position with some some money and we're ready to actually start building a brewery and was actually just looking for someone to implement that plan for him so um, that happened within about two weeks I was on a plane and um, on my way back to Australia
0: so describe your approach uh, here at ballistic um, you know what what sort of beers do you want to make what's your underpinning philosophy around uh, what, what what you're doing
1: sure so I guess my personal brewing style um is a little bit traditional uh, i suppose putting a trying to put a contemporary um spin on traditional brewing styles a lot of the stuff i learned about recipe design and um recipe formulation ingredients and stuff was from um, an old friend of mine charlie hodgson who actually um happens to work and run helios around the corner so he was my original team leader um, at Gauge Road, and so he helped me once I was a commercial brewer. I actually, ended up started doing some home brewing, and he helped me with um, formulating recipes and the keeping it simple, and you know, getting grists together that weren't over complicated and getting the but getting the right results. And so, sort of applied that a little bit um, here, but for us, uh, philosophy around beer is. Um, so a couple of our key values here is um education and community so we're all about teaching people about what good fresh beer is and then also um engaging the community and getting them um in around so i guess it's all about just fresh fresh good beer is what we're trying to do
0: okay talk us now the the beer that we're here to talk about is you've, you've got a sleep when you're dead series um just talk us a little bit about what the uh, thinking is around that series.
1: Sure. So, the Sleep When You're Dead series um, came out of a conversation that David, Luke, and I were having. Um, that's uh, David David Kitchen, Kitchen is the CEO. And, and Luke then, Phillips, um, your sales manager. That's right, yeah. And so, we're just discussing the challenges um, that brewers have and also uh, consumers around getting fresh beer, um, particularly hoppy beers and And basically having, um, transparency around, you know, how old those beers are and, and how hard it is to find that fresh beer and, um, just trying to find a route where people gave, gave a shit about what was going on with that beer. So, um, the idea was uh, stemmed from that conversation. And we basically thought, why don't we brew a, a batch of a single batch beer, um, Give it an eight-week dead-by date and then as soon as that beer uh, reaches that date, we'll run around to everywhere if it still exists anywhere uh, locally and just pull it off the shelves and um, so that any person who has an experience with that beer or an engagement with that beer, it's a positive one. Um, so that was the basic thinking behind that.
0: Talk me through your approach to, you know, what what, what you think about beer freshness. And I'll, I'll just sort of step back a little bit to, um, it's been an issue that we've looked at quite a bit um, on, on Brews News. And on one hand, you see a lot of brewers talking about, you know, that there's this whole hashtag FAF or fresh as fuck, you yeah. know, celebrating beer fresh. Um There are so many brewers who talk about getting into it because they wanted to make the best beer possible, unlike the macro stuff that went before. At the same time, very few brewers will tell you that a beer is going to be anything near how it came off the line after it's been in trade for six months' time. And yet, a lot of brewers are willing to put 12 months uh, best before date on and say, well, we back our beer to 12 months – and as somebody who watches the the, the beer scene, there just seems to be in like a, a disconnect between some of those things that you know the, the, the brewing industry uh, says, um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated in this uh, that it's not just you're putting a short use by date on, mm. but you're backing yourselves to put it out into trade um, in in the volume in the distribution where there is pull through, and that you'll t- then take it off the shelves if after that two months has gone there's still beer that unsold
1: yeah so i guess i don't really like to comment on what everyone else is doing we sort of like to look look at what we're doing and our own procedures and our own values and and how that reflects on how we're running our business but um i guess this all was just about putting out the money where our mouth is you know like like you say people harp on about freshness and um we wanted to to live and breathe it you know like we wanted to be able to Put that beer out and be sure that, you know, because we can't control what retailers do when they take it to their shop. We can't control if they put on the shelf or they put it in the fridge. We can't control whether they leave a carton sitting out in the sun for two weeks, you know. But we can back these beers. We're 100% sure that for eight weeks they're going to be in their prime. And so... We just wanted to make sure that people touching that beer were always having a good experience.
0: Let's step back. Tell, talk us through your core range of beers.
1: Sure. So we have um, four beers in our uh, core range. We have um, uh, Pilot Light, which is a, we're calling a table beer, um, just trying to use that term. It's more of a mid-strength American parallel. We have a Craft uh, Lager, which is dry hopped lager using Southern Hemisphere grown noble derivative hops. Um, We've got Australian Cycle IPA which is a 70 IBU, 6.5% all Australian hopped IPA Um, and then we've uh, just this year released uh, our pale ale so it's just called Ballistic Pale so 5.2% fruity American pale ale.
0: And you package those beers, you you, you get a contract canner in to to package those for you?
1: That's right yeah so um, they're all in in cans, available Mm. in cans yeah from contract mobile canning.
0: So what, what what's your when you put those beers in trade? Do you put them in um, all with the same uh, best before date, or how, how do you how do you approach yeah, your dating for your sure. so, core range beers?
1: So with the um, date stamping on that stuff, we put we've moved moved exclusively to putting a canned on date, so that um, every uh, every person that can grab that beer can have a look and we encourage people to do so is actually have a look at the date that beer was was canned and um can make an informed choice and you know people want to drink it after four months they're more than welcome to but at least they can make that decision um what we also do at the back end is a lot of my work around production planning goes into actually brewing smaller volumes more often so we actually plan all of our production around only uh, turning around all our beer in 12 weeks so it gives a little bit more work for us um when we're actually brewing the beer and um logistically you know moving stuff in and out we can't just bulk make stuff and stick it in the corner and you know let it run down we need to be really proactive um about the volumes we're brewing and how fast we're moving them through trade and we have had a few close calls where you know running out of stuff that we've got permanent taps for and um it just becomes it becomes a challenge but it's we welcome it because it means that um our beer is always going to be the best best it can be and there's obviously going to be challenges moving forward as we grow we're mostly you know say 70 80 national as a brand now so as that grows there's going to be further challenges with that but um that's our plan and that's what we've been trying to implement since we opened so um i guess we'll just forge ahead with that and, and deal with the challenges as they arise
0: so, what sort of um, testing system do you guys have in place, if any, um, mm. for, you know, testing your beers at various uh, stages under varying conditions so you know your lifespan of your beers and, you know, when you think that they are, you know, at, at their best and even still at acceptable quality?
1: Sure. So, um, a lot of our quality testing with um, with beer and, and ageing and stuff is, is, is pretty much all sensory for us, so... Um, lucky that uh, we're lucky that I uh, managed to get a fair bit of um, sensory training when I was working at Gage Roads and um, Jake uh, one of the other brewers here is an absolute weapon um, when it comes to tasting Ev uh, the the other brewer's done a lot of um, formal tasting stuff as well so our skills um, even though being a small brewery we've got some fairly advanced sensory skills which has been really nice um, to be able to lean on them but so we have systems where we actually um, force AGR beer. So we'll leave some stuff in an ambient environment and then we'll actually taste um, a single unit of that stuff each week um, and then record record the data and just trying to collect uh, data to show you know when things are at their peak. But um, 12 weeks sort of, you know, shown itself to be the magic number, um, particularly with ambient storage. And so we sort of... Try and think about it as worst case scenario once we're out in trade so that, you know, if a thing is going to sit on the shelf or in the sun that, you know, that's still going to be of of acceptable quality after that time. What's
0: the decision tree in then not putting a best before date, you know, and having an active guide that is saying we, as Ballistic, think this is when our beers will be uh, at their best? Best before is a is a problematic one because it's yeah. a legally defined term. Um, but you know, putting a date that you guys uh, think is is the best time to have your beers.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a tough one. I guess we just um, we don't really want to dictate to. You know, we think consumers. You know, we, we don't think they're stupid. Like, we would hope that us as an industry, and you know, I know it's not just our responsibility at Ballistic, it's, you know, you, Beer Matt, and, you know, every, I think everyone else in the industry, bar owners, retailers, to educate consumers about what's good and bad beer. So, um, we like to just be transparent and give that information freely, but then allow people to make their own decisions. So, You know, we have beers like our um, our grandfather, which is an Oakdale, it's an English style, um, malt-driven ale that's fermented on oak. So um, that sort of beer to me is sort of um, getting to its peak after about six months. So um, we don't want to just give that, you know, I suppose we could split up between different beers, but it's just nice for people to be able to make make that informed decision themselves, empowering the the end user rather than us um, dictating, dictating those terms
0: how hard is it when you have a, a view of when your beer is um you know three months um mm-hmm. say um and you if you were to put three months on you know a best before date of three months from from when it was packaged um it, it maybe spends a month in trade so it's got still got two months left on the the best before date mm-hmm. um do you ever have issues with Uh, retailers or distributors uh, saying, oh, well, you know, people are complaining because it's only got two months on a three-month, left of a three-month date um, and then they compare it to a beer that's got six months less left of a 12-month date. So, it's a a beer that is six times older than yours but it still has six months and so, there is a perception amongst the consumer that it's a better beer.
1: Or a fresher beer. Yeah, sure. Um, it's definitely a challenge, isn't it? Uh, uh, well, well, I mean, that's why we don't we don't put a best before on there, you know. Like we just we found it would be prohibitive um, in that sort of situation. But um, I don't know, it, it seems fresher, right? If it's canned on only four weeks ago than if it's got eight weeks left on its uh, on its best before.
0: It is a struggle, and I, I ask you that question because I have had a lot of brewers say, and I, I get the sense that nobody wants to actually call that out because you've yeah. got relationships with retailers. Sure. Um, but it 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 is a real problem, but at the same time, on on one hand, you sort of think, well, surely the retailers should be letting people know that the, well, you're actually not comparing like for like and you' you're, you're yeah. looking at two different things. But then you've also got the issue that it, retailers are just there to sell beer as well. Like they don't necessarily necessarily see it as their job to educate um uh, about the nuances of, of of date coding.
1: Yeah, sure. Oh. Uh- yeah, it's a tough one and, and and you know he's a casual that works um, in a bottle shop you know on the weekend. Do they know or do they care? Like I mean, I guess I, I don't know, it just I think it falls back on us a little bit to just try and drive that education and, and we just hope that the people that are drinking our beer have enough information to be able to make that decision. you know the only the only beer that we do put a uh, used buy or we call it a dead buy date on the the sleep when you're dead series. Um, as I was saying before, you know, uh, we pulled, um, we had the India Brown hours, our previous release, it was, uh, a week ago, Friday, I think where we actually, um, sent all our sales staff out and they went around to where there was a four pack left in this bottle shop. We called around every person that had bought the beer. I ended up just going around and just pulling all that beer off the shelf. Um, it meant we all had a couple of nice beers to drink on the weekend, but, um, it was
0: still only two months old.
1: Well, exactly right. And it was super fresh and I'd, I was drinking them on the weekend myself and they were tasting great, but. You know we wanna um you know live by the fact that that's it's why when it's in its prime, so um yeah that's what we do to mitigate that but it, again it's I mean, it's a massive business decision it's a really challenging if you've got like you say a three month best before and people are not wanting to accept it you know it makes it really um really challenging for sure i mean i know yeah uh, i've got friends that run a bottle shop in um in Melbourne and they won't accept anything that's got less than uh, that's more than uh, eight weeks old or something since it's been packaged, which is just part of their, their ethos within their business, which um, is really cool. But not every retailer uh, will do that either. So, And,
0: and, and that's why like I, I think it's a great story, because on one hand, it's, it's a really clever marketing angle. That, that you guys have brought out i'm not saying that in a cynical way but sure. it is it's it's telling people this beer is fresh it's creating a hopefully a little bit of buzz um, uh, around this new beer that has only got uh, two months on it um, and, and all of those things so it'll get retails and people sort of talking about this special release sure but at the same time it is also educating you know it's it's, it's creating awareness about well hold on why would you only put two months on a beer um, and it, it hopefully does create that discussion for retailers and consumers about the importance of uh, fresh beer. So I, I, I just sort of think it's a it, it's a fairly ballsy move um, because at the end of yeah. the day, you could end up... Uh, I, I believe you've pre-sold a lot of it into retail, so...
1: Yeah, most of it, I think it's it's pretty much all gone already as, as far as wholesale's gone, so... Um, but then
0: you've still got a uh, the, the, the next stage yeah. that needs to move theirs. Otherwise, you've got to go back and collect a whole lot of beer
1: yeah and it's an expensive exercise i can tell you you take all your reps off the road for a day um and then they're going around just picking up beer that we've sold and we have to credit or um, do exchanges for um you know we're lucky that it wasn't a great volume we did the last one but um i don't know we just like to back ourselves that our beer is good enough that people are going to want to drink it as well you know that's um another reason but Yeah, it's
0: definitely tough. And and it's a really ballsy decision. And because, again, I have have this conversation a lot with brewers who – and a lot of them have gone to having a born-on date, um, which is almost – you know, it's one of those ways to let people who care about freshness and know about freshness know, well, that actually – causing problems for yourself later on so it, 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 it's a compromise it, it's a compromise approach but it's not that's compromise is different from compromised yeah. um, so I don't want you to reach across the table and <laughs> hit me for uh, having a yeah. bit but you know so it, I, I guess it is a compromise approach and um, in 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 doing that, but at the, at the same time, it does let people know, you know, it's it's being transparent with people about how old the, the, the beer is. Yeah, um, totally.
1: And I, and I think there's um obviously going to be some challenges. I, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think there's some. Um Uh, guidelines around with some of the bigger retailers where where, um, you know just because it all flows down from food standards you know there needs to be best befores and stuff there's actually requirements Um, does
0: there on beer though and I probably need to really look into this myself but mm. um if you use, minus understanding is that if you use either of the, you know, best before or use by dates, mm. they have very precise meanings. Sure. Um, but then you look at Cooper's that has a uh, best after date. Yeah, sure. And doesn't have a best before date. So yeah. I don't know that, and there's a whole lot of packages uh, in market that
1: don't have any date on at all. Um, right. So, yeah, I may be wrong or maybe I'm just yeah. shopping, shopping at good bottle shops. But um, uh,
0: Yeah, well, m- most of them do, but... Yeah. Um, I am. I am speaking to uh, somebody from uh, Endeavour Drinks, which is uh, Dan Murphy's, mm-hmm. about the training that they're doing, um, and uh, we've had some preliminary chats about that. Um, and th- they are really starting to move towards encouraging brewers to know their own beers, yeah, um, and know because they don't want beers on. 12 months, um, you know, on a shelf for 12 months when they know themselves that the beer isn't tasting any good after three months. Um, and that seems to be like, there, there does seem to be the move in the industry towards working out how we can educate people, but still run our businesses.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really tough way. And there's, I know there's, there's different things that make beer age at different rates, right? As well, you know, temperatures, the, the big one, right? You know, the old, old thing, um, chemical reactions happen faster at high temperatures, right? So your your beer staling is going to happen faster when your beer's hotter. So there's only, you know, not – unfortunately, not every single bottle shop in Australia can store everything in the fridge, you know, and whether they'd want to or not, I don't know. But maybe we can try and force their hand a little bit, you know, by educating consumers, and I guess this is probably where it starts. But, um, yeah, it does make it hard. And and so – but, like, this beer that, you know, the India Brown that maybe – um could have sat in the fridge at one degree for you know it might taste great after four or five months like but you just can't control that you know in the trade so
0: and again that's um another thing that brewers point to and and absolutely true like you can sell somebody um a carton of beer from your fridge at the brewery Mm. and they'll put in the boot of their car and leave it there for the weekend. Yeah. Absolutely nothing you can do about that um, and if they bring it back and complain about how it's tasting, you don't know any of that
1: yeah um, and it's, and it reflects poorly on us, right it, it, yeah. it
0: does and, and, and that's one of the and, and I get that and the, the longer it is, I'm just trying to work out it where can we start putting pressure on the chain and, and th- this goes right back to my initial point about on one hand we all know that beer off the line mm. is generally the best it's ever going to be yeah and we celebrate that. We know that beer after a certain age, uh, after a certain age, isn't at its best. Where can we put pressure on to bring consistency in our messaging, so we're not then uh, confusing the consumer?
1: Yeah, well, I guess it. I mean, it starts with with that education thing, right? And it's something that you know, it's one of our core values of our of our business is um, education, and we really want people to be able to make informed decisions. And so maybe it's my punk sensibilities from when I used to play music as a teenager. But, you know, like if we could start that, that revolution, you know, from the grassroots and from the consumers, you know, they're going to demand, they, they tell the retailers what to do, right? Essentially. you know, if they're just not going to buy anything that's on the shelf, then it's going to force their hand at some stage um, because they're running businesses. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, we just want people to drink good beer. We want people to have a positive experience when they drink our, our beer. So um, it's just one of the steps that we can take to to try and ensure that. But, I mean, you don't. we can't ensure it every time. You know, we don't, we don't control everything. So, yeah, as much as I'd like to.
0: As much as you'd like But I, I guess, you know, I, I, I fear that I sort of see some brewers going, well, we can't control everything, hmm. so we're not going to care about anything, um, which is... You know, I, yeah. I, and not saying that that's you, because I, again, the, the reason we're chatting about this is because I really like um, this mindset. But yeah, there, there is a little bit of, well, you know, we can't control everything. Yeah. So we're not going to care about it at all. Oh, it's a bit of a shitty attitude,
1: isn't <laughs> it? Yeah, yeah.
0: But again, you know, there are so many uh, elements to it because, you know, I get upset uh, at wine sommeliers, for example, where they, you know, excuse the language, but they wank on about their wine list and sort of talk about all these things. Um, and you sort of think, well, you really, really care about your wine and mm. the provenance and the techniques that have been used and you really celebrate that. And then you've got Peroni Red Label on in your venue. yeah. And when you ask them why they've got that, oh, so everybody knows that it's imported. Um, yeah. And it's just going, but it tastes terrible. It's been cooked, and not only that, because it's been parallel imported, it's been treated even worse than it would be. And so, whilst you, on one hand, you're happy to educate people about wine, you're happy to do the. If somebody did that to your to to, to wines, you'd be upset about it. And yeah. Yet for another product that you're selling to exactly the same people. Just for a bit of marketing wank, you're willing to sell a compromised product that you know is compromised.
1: Yeah, Um, it's tough. eh? And I think, um, you know, beer's had it a bit hard. Um, You know, wine's always been seen as this prestigious product. Um, You know, beer is sort of only now sort of, you know, forging ahead with being a, a premium high quality thing, probably because of this craft beer revolution that's happening uh, in Australia but you know I used to find that you know going out for a nice meal down around Margaret River 10-15 years ago when I was sort of living down there growing up you know the wine the wine list was amazing all amazing local vineyards and stuff and there were some really great breweries down there even then you know the Colonials and the Bootlegs and the um, Martin, yep. yeah you know making amazing award-winning beer um, and just weren't getting in you know to these places that were serving amazing produce from the region um, be it in food and then wine, but then this, this beer was just overlooked and they'd be selling crownies, you know, and it just... Yeah, yeah.
0: and, and, and we're, we're, we're fighting that battle, I guess, uh, you know, for me, um, and, and the reason for this chat is because, uh, you know, beer had come to be seen as something that was, you know, bulletproof and it could just sit on a shelf mm. um, and just a natural turnover and the, the more pressure we can put on the system to change... Um, those things and create awareness that beer is best fresh and yeah. things like that the, the better which again um, you know to just to reiterate it once more I'm really excited to see and uh, I, I challenge the listeners to go out and uh, well buy it fresh yeah. um, and then if you see it on you know the, the, the shelf in uh, w- when is it being released it's being released uh, this week
1: uh, yeah this Friday we do have um, I think and this
0: will go up uh, tomorrow so it'll be literally this Friday if you're listening yeah, to Friday,
1: it yeah Friday the third of, of August August yeah. so I I think um, Brewski in Brisbane actually have a sneaky keg for official IBA, uh, International IPA Day, which okay. is Thursday the second. Tell us, the, um,
0: and we haven't even addressed the beer. So yeah. tell us the style. The, your last one was the India Brown Ale, and yep. this one is a uh, it, it's it's a new style that not many people might have heard about. It's yes, called a Niepa.
1: Nipah, so a New England <laughs> IPA. Yeah, I don't know. Um, not really many of them around at the moment, so a bit of a new style. Uh, no, um,
0: but if there is one beer that really should have a dead on date. Um, it is yeah. a New England IPA.
1: hundred percent. And so um, it really fitting with this style. And the whole Sleep When You're Dead series is all around hoppy beers. And so, um, but yeah, so this is a recipe that um, Jake, Ev, and I, our actual collaborative, have been working on for probably the last six to eight months. We've been doing batches on the pilot kit, just refining uh, the hopping schedule. And then and the Grist is a big one with these beers, not having brewed a lot of them in the past, and a reasonably new style um just trying to get the the grain right and the salt profile right salt profile is a really big one on this we found um so through quite a few trials through the pilot kit we sort of landed on something we're really happy with um so we wanted to do it on a on a large scale um on our on our big brewery and so um yeah it's just a typical new england ipa so um really hazy um but not not to its detriment either you know it's, it adds that luscious silky silky mouthfeel low bitterness um and then just juicy fruity fruity hop so using mosaic ruaka uh citra and uh can't remember the last hop <laughs> shows <laughs> so how much I right yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh you are the head bro you don't have to remember all yeah, of that's the details right, yeah. you have got people yeah. for that <laughs> that's right so um, oh, awesome so well, look out and how widely is it going to be i mean we are a national podcast. Yeah, so, so it's
1: it's a uh mostly nationwide release. So we there's um a keg and um and cartons going to selected retailers in Perth. Um Victoria Keeping those Perth
0: contacts alive?
1: Uh, <laughs> 100%, yeah. Uh Victoria and then we've got some going down to um New South Wales as well. As well uh, majority of the beer is going to Southeast Queensland to our home market.
0: Awesome. Well, listeners, look out for it. Uh, this isn't a paid a- advertisement for it, but I want you to look out for it because I'm really interested to hear your reports on how it's tasting and uh, how it's moving on the shelves. Because it's a really ballsy move for for ballistic to to put this date on. Um, a couple of other brewers have done it um, overseas. I'm not too, too sure of too many in Australia that have that have done it. So please uh, look out for it and let us know how it's tasting. And uh, Lockie Cruthers, thank you very much for joining us on Beer as a
1: Conversation. Thanks, Matt. Cheers.
0: Don't forget, if you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways. You can sponsor the show, either by a small monthly contribution or through a one off donation. You can find details in the show notes. You can review our podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service. Let us know what you think and help others discover the show. Finally, you can tell us directly what you think by sending an email to producer at BruiseNews.com.au. All letters received will receive a Brews News bottle opener and thanks to our good friends at Beer Cartel, the Letter of the Week will receive a mixed six-pack of Australian craft beer. When Brews News cast and crew are buying online, we buy at Beer Cartel. We love hearing your thoughts on the stories we cover because beer is a conversation and we look forward to another conversation next week.